though the first two lessons are kind of just setting the tone and some of the reason why it's so important that we go through and teach on the cross. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 19 says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Remember that voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? Right here you have the answer. It pleased the Father that in him should all the Godhead, all the fullness of the Godhead dwell. Then he goes on to say, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Today, lesson number two, we're going to talk about how the cross is central to everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything past, everything that is currently happening, and everything that is going to happen in the future. The cross is central to it all. We learned last week that the Old Testament lies under the shadow of the cross. So the cross uh, is central to really fully understanding uh, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms in all the history books in the Old Testament, all the things that are written concerning, you know, we read things and we think it's just about this king or that king, and we try to glean personal, you know, uh, you know interpretations out of it, and all those things are fine. But there lies hidden in the shadow of the Old Testament a much deeper meaning. And we went through some of that last week. Um, but the cross is key to, un- to unlocking God's secret wisdom, and how... Not only is the cross central to understanding things past, but it's also key to understanding things present and things to come. That is prophecy. Now, whenever you look at the Bible, and and whenever you read through and you start reading the book of Genesis, you get a strong feeling that everything is leading up to somewhere, that it's going somewhere. It's not just a random grouping of events that the writer just slapped together. If you have never read the Bible before, uh, you, you still get the strong feeling that something is happening. And then you get to how the man fell in the garden. And the first, as far as I can understand, the first prophetic utterance in the entire Bible. Do you know where it's at? Bible study teachers. Genesis 3. And you know what it was. Who it was to. It was to Eve. And the, and the promise was, it shall bruise thy head, and you will bruise his heel. The very first prophecy in the Bible had to do with the cross. And so when you read it from that vantage point, how prophecy, you know, we think when we read prophecy and how, you know, things were prophesied over Israel in, in this nation and that nation, but everything rose and fell to bring about the grouping of events that happened in 33 AD. It all happened to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, we would say the kingdom of God came on Pentecost, and it did. But the kingdom of God, Pentecost, has its efficacy through the cross and through the blood. There is no Pentecost without the cross. There's no resurrection without the cross. So the cross is central to understanding everything. The cross was the ending point of the law of Moses or the fulfillment of it. Why? Because the Old Testament and the law pointed to the cross. From Luke 16 and 16, it says the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Since what time? Since the time that John the baptizer came. 
So the law and the prophets came until John came on the scene. And why John? When John came on the scene, he came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There comes one after me whose shoes are not worthy to step down and loose. He came and he was the fulfillment of that verse in Isaiah where it said, every, every mountain shall be brought low. Every valley shall be exalted. In other words, God was going to even the playing field. And he was going to put through the preaching of John, the Pharisee, on you know, the law-keeping Pharisee on the same level as the prostitute and the sinner. That was the preaching of John. He told those Pharisees, you are a sinner just like these publicans. Matter of fact, Jesus said at one point, they're closer to the kingdom than you are. Not something they particularly enjoyed hearing. But the law and the prophets were until John. And of course, it was until John because John was the forerunner for the Messiah. Now there was law keeping in the days of Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus himself would have kept the law of Moses perfectly. Because the law still was was still had its efficacy in the time of Jesus because there was an overlapping period where the law was coming to a close and grace was beginning. But the event that would have had to happen to bring about the fulfillment of the law hadn't yet occurred yet, and that was the cross. John 1 and 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Moses, as you know, ushered in the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When he says grace and truth, he meant that the old system was that was full of shadows and types pointed to a better way that was still yet to come. In fact, it taught man the necessary things in order for the gospel to have its proper efficacy. Things like this from Psalms 14 and 3. They are all gone out of the side. They are all altogether become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. Well, so whenever they, those Jews would have read this prophetic utterance from Psalms, they are all together become filthy. Even the high priest should have known. I'm filthy because I need the blood before I come into the whole. Now, if I was holy all by myself, I don't need blood. I don't need a covering. So the law, in a very subtle way, taught the thing that man needed the most, and that is to be convinced of his own unrighteousness. So Paul picked up that thing in Romans 3 where he said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's part of the gospel. You don't need a Savior if you don't think that you're a sinner. That's where a lot of people are at today. They think they're pretty good until they read the Ten Commandments and then compare them to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 because he made them stricter because that was designed to convince us that we needed to be saved. Galatians 3 and 23 says, Before the faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So the law brought us to Christ in the same way that those Pharisees and Sadducees in Jesus' day went to the woman and caught her in the very act, the Bible says, of adultery. Now, I'm not going to ask how they knew where to find her. That's another sermon for another time. But they knew where to go and what time to go. But they caught her in the very act, and they threw her at the feet of Jesus. Now, a lot of people read that, and they say Pharisees are evil. But remember this, that woman would have never came to Jesus if it hadn't been for those Pharisees. She would never have came to the foot of the cross, to, or to the foot of the Lord, 
and had her sins, sins forgiven and her life changed permanently had it not been for that. And so there was a law that cast us down at the foot of a Savior and convinced us that we needed to die the death. But Jesus said, forgive them and just credit their sins to me. That's, what, that's, that's the proper usage of the law. And so the law brought us to Christ in that fashion. In Christ's day, the law was still being kept because the sacrifice that would end it all had not yet come. But the kingdom of God was getting ready to come. And so when the, when the law ended, grace began. The law convinced us of our sin and grace forgave us of our sin. And so the law and grace work together in perfect harmony. They do not work contrary to the other. The law ended at Calvary and the grace of God began. Therefore the cross is central to everything. When you read the Old Testament with the cross in mind and you look for it in every verse, every every verse, every chapter, every page, you will find the hidden wisdom of God that the Jews missed. The Jews missed it. When Jesus said, it is finished, we're going to talk about this in several weeks from now, but when he said, it is finished, of course, he was speaking about his sacrificial death and how atonement was accomplished, but I believe more than that, he was speaking about the fulfillment of the law. It's, it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished, it's completed. Uh, it's, it, it, it brought us to this point. And so, you know, it's kind of like a baton that was handed, handed down. And, and so Jesus said, the law is completed, it is finished, it was placed on his shoulders, it was nailed to the cross. So even after his death, you can read in Jerusalem how the law was continued to be kept for a while. Um, you can read the story of Peter and Cornelius. Peter needed to be convinced. This was several years after Pentecost. I think a good eight or ten years after Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. When Cornelius was praying, you know that story in Acts chapter 10, and that Peter had to be convinced through through visions of the Spirit, that God that it was okay for him to even talk to a Gentile. And you can read how, how there, were, uh, there was a division, there was a sect of the circumcision that believed you had to be circumcised after the manner of Moses. You can read that repeatedly. So even, you know, even the early church had, didn't have this full understanding yet that the law was completely came to an end. But that is exactly why they crucified, or not crucified, but they stoned Stephen. Because he said that Moses' temple was going to be torn down and the sacrifices are going to end. So at the time, even of Pentecost, after Pentecost, for a while there were still sacrifices being made. But they had lost its efficacy. They no longer had any power. Okay, so where the shadow ended, the reality of that shadow began. But there was, there was this overlapping period. And that was the stumbling block the Jews had. They did not understand that the law was only a shadow that pointed to something better. Luke chapter 2, Simeon blessed them and said, Mary and Mary's mother, Behold, this child, talking about Jesus, it's set for the fallen rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce your own soul, and that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So Simeon prophesied through the Holy Ghost that as he held the baby Jesus, that, that, this, Messiah, that this Christ, that this baby was the Messiah, the Christ, and that he was set for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And so this happened through the cross. The cross was the stumbling block to the Jews. Now, in their minds, 
you know, the thought of a cross is nonsense because, you know, again, they didn't understand the hidden wisdom of God. They had no understanding of it. Even Isaiah may not have fully understood when he picked up his pen and wrote Isaiah 53. He is a man of sorrows and rejected a man, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Even Isaiah may not have fully understood what he was writing about, but it was only through the revelation of the Spirit of God that that wisdom could have ever been revealed. And it is the same way today. It is through the preaching of God. God's word. That is how God reveals the gospel to sinners. But in their mind, how could a bloody cross have to do with anything? 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks it is foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. That cross was the hidden wisdom of God in the Old Testament. But that cross was also a great stumbling block to the Jews because in the Jewish mind, the law taught them that they could be saved by works. You had to do this. You had to make this sacrifice. You had to pick this pile of stones up and put it over here. And that was works. And it made them feel good about themselves. But that's not how grace works. Grace works Whenever we are convinced that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And we come to Jesus and we repent of our sins. And we are obedient to that gospel by being washed in the name of Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is how the gospel works. But the law gave the Jews a sense of pride. But at the foot of the cross, there is no pride. There is only contrition, humility, and repentance. That's the wisdom of God hidden to the proud but revealed to the penitent. And for those Jews, that generation who would reject the gospel, there would be an overthrowing because of the cross. Now, many of the parables in Jesus' day had to do with a coming judgment upon the Jews upon that generation. Here's one example. This is not a parable, but it's a prophecy from Matthew 23. Jesus said this, fill you up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how shall you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send I sent unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom ye sleep between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon who? This generation. Then he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones them which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and he would not. Now, what Jesus is talking about here was he was saying that all the blood of the prophets shed was, for the most part, shed in the city of Jerusalem. Many of the prophets were killed, that were killed, were killed in the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, and, and mostly murdered by the Jews. And now they were getting ready to commit the sin that would bring them ultimate judgment upon that generation, and that was the killing and the murdering of the Messiah, the Son of God, their King and their Lord. And as the demonically possessed leaders of Jesus' day put him to death, Jesus spoke these words before he died. And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks too. But he said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, we are not the ones that 
you know, we could say it was our sins that put him on the cross. That's true. But we are not physically the ones that crucified. We weren't even around 2,000 years. I mean, I'm, I'm turning 50 this year, but I'm not that old, okay? It's 2000, almost 2,000 years ago. So we were not the ones that physically put him to death on the cross. And so Jesus was talking about that generation. Father, forgive them. In other words, you know, I know that judgment is, is, is going to come because he prophesied about it. But at the same time, he's opening the door for grace to be poured out upon that generation. And with that, the door of mercy swung wide open and thousands came into it just a few months later. In Acts 2 alone, there were over 3,000 people that were spirit-filled and baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. These were all Jews. The Bible calls them proselytes. A proselyte was a convert, but they were considered Jews as well. So these were law-keeping Jews. So Paul said in Romans 1 that the gospel is to the Jew first. And then to the Gentiles. So there was an overlapping period after that generation rejected the Messiah that Jesus was reaching out to the Jewish generation because they would face judgment. And Jesus had already warned them when you see these things, flee Jerusalem. When you see it compassed about with armies and yelling, get out of here. You know, get out of this place. Come out of her, my people. You know, the book of Revelation said in one place, so, so, so get out of her. And so whenever Titus, governor of Rome, surrounded Jerusalem in 70 A.D., he went through the city and he ransacked and pillaged it and he burnt her timber to the ground just as, as Jesus had prophesied. But before that, less than a generation earlier, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and after he said what they needed to do to be said, he said this. And with many other words that he testified and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Because that generation was who the prophets prophesied about would, would, would see a time when Jerusalem would be uninhabited, where there would be no tempers, no temples and no worshipers, nothing but jackals and wild hyenas would inhabit the city in the voice of owls. As a matter of fact, uh, after they expelled the Jews from Jerusalem, the governor of Rome, or rather the emperor of Rome, renamed it Philistine, which we know now as Palestine. This is right there in your history books. He named it Philistines because the Jews hated the Philistines. That was their arch enemy in the Old Testament. They were always winning and fighting against the Philistines. So he renamed it Philistines. Now, modern-day Palestinians, I don't think, are Philistines. I don't know that much about it. But I do know that's why he renamed it. And so it was completely renamed. They didn't even call it Jerusalem for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And slowly at the beginning of, of the last century, you can see the, as the Jews begin to trickle back into Jerusalem, begin to live there and inhabit the city once again, you can see how God began to pour out his spirit again upon the Gentiles. You see, it was all central to the cross. The cross was central to everything. The cross is the hinges upon which the door of history swings. As a matter of fact, history itself is not just a random grouping of kingdoms rising and falling. How the Greeks or the, you know, the Median Persians fell to the Greeks. The Greeks were around for a while and they fell to the Romans. And then the Romans fell for a while and it was kind of, you know, the Dark Ages. And then this kingdom rise, the Ottoman Empire came about. And, and here we are in America. Here we are today. It's not just a group of random, you know, of random grouping of events in history. But God gave his plan to Daniel in chapter 2. You know, that beast that came up out of the earth, and you can read about that in Daniel chapter 2. And then, then Daniel said this, all these kingdoms will fall, 
so that the kingdom that will not fall can come about. In other words, all the events of history that happened happened to bring about the birth of the church. Now, the church was born on Pentecost, but it was bled for and paid for at Calvary. It was paid for on a bloody hill. And so the cross are the hinges upon which the door of history and prophecy swings. It's central to our understanding of everything. The cross was what the Old Testament foreshadowed. It was the turning point to the Old Testament, to the end and to the dispensation of grace where the grace would begin. It was the turning point for judgment to occur on the Jews and for the, uh, and for the ushering in of the times of the Gentiles because as soon as the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem, um, God again turned to the Gentiles. God had already been turning to the Gentiles. But from that time until now, we have what we call the times of the Gentiles. Now, depending on what your, your version of, of prophecy is, I do not have a perfect understanding of prophecy. So if I'm wrong, call me a heretic and Pastor Dasher Dornbach will fix it. But, but here's my understanding of is that is that after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, there will be a, God will turn again to the Jews. And I'll turn again to them via the same way he did in the beginning. It will be through the cross. They're going to call him Ishi, which is Messiah or husband. And, and they're going to recognize him as Messiah once again. So the cross is central to everything. Colossians 1.20 says that currently God is reconciling everything together in Christ. That is through the means of his sacrificial atoning death. You cannot come to God unless you come through the cross. This is the age where God is bringing to himself a people that were not a people. Everybody say, that's me. We were not a people. But now we have been called the people of God. Aren't you thankful for that? We are not just Gentiles, but we are sons of Abraham by faith and sons of God. We are adopted into the family, and we are just as righteous as Father Abraham was, but through him. Soon this age will be fulfilled just as the law was fulfilled in Jesus' day. And just as the law came to a conclusion, this age of the Gentiles will also come to a conclusion. Revelation 10 and 7, but, as in, the days of, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished, and as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now, I've heard a lot of people read about what the mystery of God is. My version may not be right either. Here's what I think. When you read Revelation, Pastor Rome, Guy Rome years ago taught me is what you think, what you know, and what you believe. So I'm telling you what I think, not what I know. Okay? Again, please don't call me a heretic. I, I, I probably am, but just pray for me. The mystery of God. Now, now there are many mysteries. You know, when you reference this word mystery in the New Testament, I always try to let Scripture interpret Scripture. There's, there's many places where he talks about you know, the mystery. Colossians 1 talks about the mystery that was hidden from ages, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But there's only one place that I'm aware of where he specifically references a mystery of God or godliness. And it's 1 Timothy 3 and 16. And you know the scripture, we've heard it. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness or godlikeness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed God in the sword, and received up unto glory. In other words, we could not become him, so he became us. 
We couldn't become holy, so he became like us. He came with the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that is the mystery. And when you cross-reference that with 1 John, where he talked about how the Son of God came so that he might destroy the works of the devil, we know that that is the purpose of Messiah coming, was to die on the cross and thus redeem man from, from, from sin and destroy the works of the devil, which is death. He has abolished death. So, I think that when he said the mystery of God will be finished, I think that he's talking about redemption is accomplished, the doors of the ark are going to be shut, and there's no more mercy. There's only judgment. Just as it was in the days of Noah when God said, get into the ark, seven more days, and it will rain. And God shut the door. Nobody can shut up mercy until God does. As we stand, and as I end, But until God shuts it up, there's still hope. The doors of the ark have not been shut, but Noah's getting in. And we're hearing the voice of God in this hour say prophetically, get into the ark because it's getting ready to rain. I'm telling you now, if you're here today and you have never been born again of the water and the spirit, there is never a better time than today. If you got to be like Zacchaeus, if you got to press your way through the crowd and climb up a tree, you better get to him any way you can. Praise God. I'm grateful today that the cross is central to everything in history. Let's lift our hands today and let's magnify his name. He's worthy.